often that, that death approached for Jesus. It's not all glory. Uh, suffering was coming for him. The story of confusion uh, from the disciples uh, and, and then also confessions from the disciples. I mean, do they understand or, or don't they? Is, is there faith in place or is it not? And now we come to the end. The end of Mark's gospel produces something of a difficulty that I need to draw your attention to. You are not children. Uh, most of you are not children. You're grown adults. And so we have to speak about something a little tricky that's forced upon us when we come to the end of Mark's gospel. In Mark 16, uh, between verses, look at your Bible, between verses 8 and 9, you will read something like the following words. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. You see it there. That's what it says if you are reading from an ESV version or a NIV or a New King James or a Christian Standard Bible. What is a, what is a manuscript? Uh, next slide. Uh, a manuscript is a, is, a, is a handwritten copy of the Bible. The printing press was invented in 1500 or so. And before that, uh, a document was either copied by hand or it wasn't copied. Uh, paper, of course, doesn't last forever. Uh, you need to make copies. If it gets wet, you know, it's, it's ruined. You, you need to make copies if you want something to last for future generations. Where do we get the New Testament? Now, when you hold your, your Bible uh, in your hand, that precious Bible, uh, which you bought in the evangelical bookshop or the faith mission, uh, you maybe don't even think about the fact that, it's, that there's an entire history behind it. A long history. A history of, of careful preservation of, of original manuscripts, the original text, in other words. So that thousands of years later, when you read your Bible, you can trust that what you have is an accurate translation of the original. All translations of scripture, all of them, are based on ancient sources. Ancient sources that have been discovered in libraries, in ancient times, they have been discovered and they've been studied and they've been analysed for accuracy. They've been compared by the most thoughtful and careful scholars through the centuries. So I can say to you unequivocally today that the Bible you hold in your hand is an accurate translation. I can assure you have an accurate, an accurate Bible. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, who inspired every writer of Scripture, is also the preserver of Scripture. Supernaturally, he moved the writers without disrupting their own thoughts or their own words so that they wrote down exactly what he wanted them to write. He also moved the preservers to make sure that, that scriptures stayed pure for, his, for history, remaining in, in ancient libraries and, and often in the sand for, for hundreds of years. Scribes took to their task and they understood the seriousness of what they had to do. They were not uh, laid back about it. John MacArthur tells a story of, of um, some ancient Hebrew Old Testament scribes who wrote one letter, went and took a bath, and then came back and wrote another letter. And they did that for the entire Old Testament. That, that would take some time, wouldn't it? A sort of ceremonial cleansing to remind them after every single letter of the sacredness of what they were copying. You see? Of the importance of their task. 
At first, of course, they were copying the original text written by Moses or, or Isaiah or in the New Testament written by Paul or Luke or Mark, as the case is for us. They knew what they had in their hands. They, they copied it carefully because they understood the importance of Holy Scripture. Now today, we have, let's just talk about the New Testament because that's where we are. Today we have 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. 25,000. Some are whole sections, whole books, and several books. Some of them are small fragments. And many of them date from a short time after the events themselves. I'll explain the importance of that in a moment. But nothing, nothing in ancient literature even comes close to the mass of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament. And what they demonstrate on the whole is, 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 is consistency and accuracy. There is a, there's a manuscript which is on the screen at the bottom uh, called P52. It's only a, a little part, it's a little fragment of a manuscript. It's, it's of the Gospel of John. It's the bottom two pages. It's, it's blue up on the right-hand side. It's, it's contained in a, uh, in a museum in Manchester called the John Rylands Library. I, I've been to see it. That's another story. Uh, but um, it's the oldest document, oldest fragment of the New Testament that exists in the world today. Uh, John, uh, of course, lived in the 90s. Uh, he was still alive at that point, John writing his gospel. And this dates from around 100 to 150 AD. It's the oldest we have in the world. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a small piece. And what, what I'm trying to say to you is that John lived in the 90s and this was produced like 60 years later. Uh, so which tells you it's incredibly close to the event when it happened. But here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that there probably shouldn't be lots of early manuscripts. Because in the second and third century, there was lots of persecution. And in fact, not only did they try to stamp out Christians, they also tried to stamp out Christian scriptures and burn them and things like that. But God has preserved these ancient texts. Some comparison here briefly. The second most common ancient document in the manuscript world is something called Homer's Iliad. It's, a, it's an ancient poem. And next to the New Testament, there's more copies of Homer's Iliad than any other ancient piece of literature. How many do we have of them? 643. 643 compared to 25,000. You see the difference. And the earliest copy of Homer's Iliad, it's the poem, is from 500 years after the event. In other words, it came from 500 years after he wrote it. So you haven't actually got a clue that Homer actually wrote this thing at all. But people trust this and they assume he wrote it. And nothing like the 80 to 100 years after the event that we have for documents from the New Testament time. You see the difference? So I want you to, to understand, okay, this is what I'm trying to say to you. I want you to understand the accuracy of what God has preserved for you. I want you to understand that, that, there's, uh, that there's much evidence there to, to give you uh, confidence in your Bible. God does not make mistakes. But sometimes human beings can make errors. And when you read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, which you will in a moment... At first glance, it seems a little bit abrupt to end the story at verse number 8. 
especially if you're used to a longer version and perhaps that maybe disturbs you a little, I don't know. But rather than thinking of this as someone taking away some of your Bible, try to instead think of the possibility that someone could have added to the Bible. That's equally possible, isn't it? If, if you know nothing else about it, it's one of those two. Imagine, imagine that at some point a, in the copying process, a well-meaning scribe decided that the ending of Mark at verse 8 was too abrupt and decided to add an ending to sort of fill in the gap. And I want to say to you that the evidence for that exists. Because if you go back to the earliest manuscripts, it's not there after verse number 8. If you have footnotes in your Bible, you'll notice there's another option, a shorter ending that's just one verse long, that's kind of like a new verse 9. It's not in the earliest manuscripts either. I believe, uh, based on the evidence that I've looked at at length, that verses 9 to 20 are an addition rather than a subtraction from the best and oldest manuscripts, because they don't have anything past verse 8. In the 4th century, uh, two important church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome, wrote that almost all Greek manuscripts ended at verse number 8. I don't want to labour the point any further, but there's also an awkward grammar thing going on in verse 9. The, the word now doesn't really belong there. It doesn't really fit. Uh, the, the, the style of writing in the section is quite different. It uses words that Mark doesn't use anywhere else. And yes, what, what's contained in verses 9 to 20, what it says there is true, uh, but it's basically available from to preach from other passages in Scripture, which certainly are part of Scripture. Jesus did appear to the eleven at the table behind locked doors. We read about that. Uh, yes, the disciples were given the great commission. That's, that's absolutely right, to proclaim the gospel. Yes, God does protect his own from, from snakes and their empowered and acts to do, to, to do miracles. And yes, Jesus does ascend uh, to his father at the very end there. And the followers are left with a message uh, of, of the forgiveness of sins to share to others. But that's not from the pen of Mark. Rather than get too bogged down in this, let's consider what we have in the first eight verses of Mark 16. Let's read these final eight verses together. This is what God says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. 
If my counting's right, this is the 56th and final sermon on Mark's Gospel. Uh, we called the series, What's He Like? Uh, as we consider Jesus Christ. As we, uh, and here we, we finish on a high. And what a high it is. Jesus has, has risen from the grave. Uh, mission accomplished. Victory is secured. Uh, the grave could not hold him. The price for sins has been paid. Uh, the Father has accepted the offering. What's he like? Well, he's, he's an exalted, risen king. That's what he's like. He's worthy. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your following. Great to finish on a high. Or is it a high? Let's consider where are the men? After the Sabbath um, has passed, the, the Passover, uh, we, we pick up uh, the, that Passover time, we, we pick up the narrative with, with three women here on their way to the tomb where Jesus was buried on, on Friday before sunset. It's now Sunday morning and the sun is on its way back up uh, and they've come prepared. They've spent their hard-earned money on spices, we're told. They, they want to give Jesus a fitting burial. He meant a lot to them. And there's a question on their minds that morning. Uh, it's there in verse 3 and it's this. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. The, the stone in front of the tomb entrance was, was ruled in place by Joseph of Arimathea on Friday, although it may have been gravity doing the heavy lifting, uh, where the, the layout of the tomb, we, we, we believe, was, was such that, that the, the stone was ruled down into the gap at the front uh, and from the top, uh, if you can imagine that. But the question is foremost in their minds, that, 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 and it leads us to, to ask another question, which is, where are the men? Where are the disciples, in other words? Perhaps the, the Marys and Salome half expected them to be on the way to the tomb too. Maybe they half expected them to be there already. They certainly could have done the heavy work of lifting the stone if there were enough of them. But there's no Peter, there's no James, there's no John, there's no eight other remaining disciples to be seen. They aren't there, they've, they've run off. They've put distance between themselves and all of this. And alas, well, they, they've seen plenty, haven't they? They've, they've heard plenty these past three years, these, these men. But, but their faith now has taken a serious dent, hasn't it? I wonder, has your faith ever taken a serious dent? And alas, uh, the solution of the stone is not to be found with these men, but with the intervention of heaven. I, if we have any worriers among us, and I'm sure there are one or two, how often is it that the thing you worry about never comes to be? As these women arrive, the stone has already been dealt with. There's a young man, we're told, sitting inside the tomb on the right side, dressed in white. Whiter than Daz can make it. Uh, we read, it's, it's dazzling white, don't we, in another account, for its heavenly brightness. We're, of course, not in any doubt that this is not just a man. This is in such bright clothing who makes you scared when you see him. Well, that's none other than an angel. Having been given the solution to question number one, uh, with the stone rule back, uh, the, the next question that occupies the minds of the women uh, is surely this as they enter the tomb and spot an angel on the right-hand side. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? He's supposed to be dead. He was buried, uh, he was placed in this tomb and they watched it. Uh, dead people don't move. Uh, his body is supposed to be there. The angel reassures them, doesn't he? He doesn't tell them where Jesus is specifically. 
but he does recount what's happened to him and where he will be very soon. Look at the important words used by the angel. Verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a, a man who grew up in Nazareth, a real living, breathing man from Nazareth, the carpenter's son, the, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and, and Simon and Judas, who was crucified, he says. Yes, it, it really happened. It, it didn't happen in a corner. It, he was sent there to die in the most cruel of fashions, and it was public, you know, and, and he, was, he was conspired by those Jewish authorities together, and he was conspired against by the authorities, and he was subjected to that unjust trial, and he was sentenced by, by a pragmatist called Pilate who preferred people-pleasing, that's enough peace, to justice, didn't he? He really did. He was tortured by sinful humanity, he, was, he, he really suffered. The crowd mocked him as, he, as they passed by and they wagged their heads at him. And he, he faced the full white hot wrath of holy God against sinners. And he had the sins of the world placed on his own body. He has risen, says the angel. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. <laughs> look, look at the empty space. He's not here. He, he's broken that live, die, hold of, of the sin-cursed world since Adam. He's broken it. He's broken its power and its hold. He's travelled a path that no one's ever travelled before. He's not here because up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He's risen. He's vacated the grave. He rises and so in Christ all who trust in him are raised to newness of life. That's what you have as a Christian, you know that? You've got that resurrected newness of life coursing through your veins. And he rises in a, in a new and better body. It's still Jesus, but his body is upgraded. And one day we will rise with upgraded bodies too. To be with him forever reigning with him forever go and tell says the angel go and tell the disciples the good news go and tell peter the good news he's going to meet them the lord is going to meet them not in jerusalem but up north back where they're from in galilee we have the what he has done jesus of nazareth crucified and then we have the where he will be he's going to galilee and meet you there there's a gap, isn't there, as, as to where he is now? Uh, that's a question, isn't it? Uh, we aren't given the answer to that. We aren't given that in any of the gospel accounts. It's, a, it's, it's something that people have been thinking about for, for, for centuries. But we just have to trust in what we're told. And that's the same. Well, they just had to trust in what they were told. And that's just the same for us. Tell the disciples that he will see them, just as he told you. But these three women... Well, they're not able to. We're told in verse 8 they were too afraid. They, they lack. We, we, of course, have little to impress us, don't we, with the disciples now in Mark's account. We're, we're, we're not going to place too much confidence in them because they're nowhere to be seen. And these noble women who, of course, had enough get up and go to get up and go to the tomb. But once they've heard the message of the angel... Well, they're unable to witness to anyone. 
they're supposed to be going and telling, but they, they, they can't. They're, they're filled with fear. Which leads us to one final question. Where is your faith to be grounded? Where is your faith to be grounded? Is it to be grounded in, in the faith who, who, of those who've seen it unfold before them, the, the disciples in other words? I mean, on that evidence, there isn't much to hold to for they ran off. They're absent, even though they've seen it all and heard it all. What, what about the women? They've seen the empty grave. They're, they meet the angel, but, but, but they're speechless. So having read 16 chapters of Mark's gospel, where is your faith to be grounded? Well, here from the angel, it's clear that faith is to be based on an announcement. On an announcement. The angel says... He announces, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. And we, and we ask the question, is that enough? Is that enough? You see, one of the reasons for the longer endings to Mark is something like a dis- dissatisfaction with the announcement of the angel. It's, it's almost like it's not enough. We need appearances. What do you have in verse 9? If you cast your eye down, we have, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. What do we have in verse 12? He appeared in a different form to two of them. What do we have in verse 14? We have, he later appeared to the 11. And what do we have in verse 19? We have that Jesus appeared again. What we do not have in verses 1 to 8 is an appearance of Jesus. You see, have you noticed that? It's, it's, we don't have that. Yes, they're, they're in Mark. Uh, sorry, they're in Matthew. They're in Luke. They're in John. But we are in Mark. So let's focus on that because Mark does that for a reason. Mark writes the way he writes, inspired by the Spirit of God, for a purpose for his audience. You see, The point is that Mark wants his audience to understand that salvation and the forgiveness of sins comes as a result of an announcement made, not a visual appearance scene. Those endings seem dead keen on getting an appearance in there, don't they? To shore up the story. And yes, we get them in Matthew and Luke and John. But Mark writes for his audience with this in mind, and his point is that the announcement is enough. The preached word, same word, uh, same idea as announcement. The preached word is enough. The gospel is an announcement. It's a preached word, which, which, of course, if you think about it, places you and I in precisely the same position. For none of you have ever seen the risen Lord, have you? None of you have a post-resurrection visit to call from, to call on in your memory. No, you have to believe the announcement, don't you? And so do I. Announcements like Acts 16 verse 31 and Romans 10 and 9 and plenty of other announcements. Uh, And what happens when Jesus appears to Thomas in John 20 after he was absent for the first visit behind locked doors with the disciples? Well, it says this. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel shows us the even better way, the more blessed way. 
Even, even when, when Mary, the Marys do report in Luke 24 to the disciples, they don't believe it. It, it seems to them as an idle tale, we, write, we read. No, accounts are not enough. Visuals are not even enough. The, the two on the road to Emmaus still don't believe till the Lord opens the word to them and then they can see, you see. You have, you have a book with the announcement. You have a, you have a pulpit where, where the contents of this book are, are announced. Is that enough? Or are you expecting visuals? You, you don't need to add to scripture. It's enough. We don't need more signs and wonders. It's enough. We, we need the announcement of the gospel because that's enough. We need the announcement that, that he is risen. And that is what your faith needs to rest on brothers and sisters. Mark doesn't want us depending on the disciples for they've ran off. He doesn't want us depending on the women because they've, 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 they're filled with fear. They, they can't manage it. Both of them later, of course, do see the Lord in post-resurrection experiences. But human faith failures are, in essence, his point, aren't they? To rest our faith on them is, is, is not going to work. But, but, but the announced gospel, the gospel come down from heaven, the word on the page that comes to us, that's been given to us by God, that's been preserved for us, that's, that's living and enduring, that has been enough for 2,000 years. And you know what that tells me? It'll be enough forever and ever. Faith that has a risen Lord at its center. Not because we've seen him physically, but because we've heard and we believe and our eyes are open, the eyes of faith, they're open. We've heard the announcement. We place our faith on that, on that God-revealed truth. Treat your Bible like it's enough because it is. Rest your faith on what it says, the announcement Trust in the risen Lord because it says he was risen. Trust it when he says you'll rise too. Trust it when it says you've already been raised to newness of life. Live in that light. Walk by faith, not by sight. Let's bow our heads together in prayer as the musicians join me. Father, we confess that sometimes we undervalue your word. We think we need something else or we put it down for a day or two and don't lift it. Give us a confidence in your revealed truth. Give us a confidence in the gospel as you have um, inspired it by your spirit, preserved it down the centuries and given it to us and through it opened our eyes that we by faith can see the risen Lord and enough, and far more. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing, uh, stand to sing, uh, you're the word of